Welcome into a new Buff Stampede radio. Adam Tiger, the publisher of BuffStampede.com here. We usually go very football heavy on this podcast and sprinkle in a little CU men's basketball talk from time to time. But with the Pac-12 men's basketball tournament starting this week, I wanted to dedicate an entire show to Hoops Talk. So caught up with CU men's basketball beat writer Jake Shapiro. I did post a shorter solo podcast talking about Vic Saoto's departure on the football side last week. I'm sure a lot of you saw that and listened to that, but it for some reason didn't go up on iTunes and as a result didn't go up on the podcast app if you have an iPhone. Apparently, it didn't pop up on Stitcher either. It was put up on buffstampede.com and Spotify. Still trying to figure out exactly why it didn't get onto those other servers. So uh, hopefully that's not an issue going forward. But you can feel free to go on buffstampede.com, listen to it there. Just go back a little bit in terms of our stories. It was put up late Wednesday afternoon. All right, let's get into some CU men's basketball talk. Joined on the line by Jake Shapiro, a.k.a. The Professor, a.k.a. Chapalicious. How you doing, Jake? Good. I went to the Rapids game this weekend with my buddies all around my age, including our boy Chase Hall. And uh, Chase knows that I'm a professor, but most of my friends don't even know I'm a professor. And I like told them and it was like really weird. They're like, how are you like what? That doesn't make sense. I was like, I know they're like three years younger than me. It's really crazy. (laughs) So the Buffaloes. Yeah, go ahead. I don't want to cut off the professor. Uh, no, it's fun. I'm still waiting for like Luke O'Brien or something to jump into my class. Cause he's, he's in CMCI and, you know, uh, Evan Batty, sadly, I, you know, I walked into one of the few practices recently and I'm like, Evan, you've got one semester left. Like, come on, come, come join my class. He's like, dude, I've been in grad school for so long already. There's no way they'd let me take it. <laughs> so another 21 season, Colorado notches a buy in the PAC 12 tournament for the second straight year. Off the top here, Jake, where would you rank the coaching job that Tad Boyle did with this group this season as you compare it with the previous 11 years? So 12 years of Tad Boyle, you know, already this is at the top since we're having this conversation. I'll just say that the bottom two are probably the Askia Booker year after Spencer Dinwiddie left that ended in the CBI, the SKBI. And also the year that Derek White was a senior, that uber talented team that only went to the NIT. Uh, Of course, in my CU fandom, probably my biggest regret and my biggest FDNCA moment is that Derek White and Josh Scott didn't get to play together at CU, at least, you know, in actual games. I saw them practice together and it was absolutely awesome. So that's always that that always irks me. But, yeah, that Derek White year is pretty disappointing. Um, so let's talk, talk about the positive years, though. Like, I think that you look at the start of Tad Boyle's reign and him convincing, you know, Alec Burks to stay. And then that team having the run that it did is a really just, you know, overall getting talent, keeping that talent and then going on to instant success. I think that was a huge thing for the buffs. I also think that, you know, right out the gate with that Andre Roberson team, like those were pretty successful teams as Tad Boyle really quickly established an identity here. So you could probably put two of the seasons from the first four in the top coaching years of Tad Boyle. I'd also probably put last year's team in the top three because of um, what they had to go through with the pandemic um, guys being in and out of the lineup because of COVID sicknesses at times. And 
you know, even though it was a veteran team that was able to take on some of the leadership duties here and there, Tad Boyle was still the guy leading that team. So I would say that's probably my number two. And my number one is one of the years that we're talking about early on in there, you know, two of the top five for sure. But this is probably my third best coaching year from Tad Boyle. Um, Just overcoming everything that he has overcome and this team has overcome. I mean, we're looking at it right now and we'll talk about them as possible March Madness and stuff. They'd be going to the tournament with an eight man rotation full of seven underclassmen. Like, and they lost their best defender in the middle of the season. They didn't have their star recruit. They lost their second best recruit in the middle of conference play. Like, it's just absurd that they're even in the position that they won 20 games, let alone the fact they've won 20 games. You know, they had one of the biggest upsets in program history. And I think they're seven and one in their last eight or something like that. They've gotten better. Like, they were supposed to get worse when Eli Parquet and Lawson Lovering went down. And this might be a little bit of an early, too early question to throw out there, right? Just because if they go out to Las Vegas and lose by 25 points in their first game out there, then the perception of that maybe changes a little bit. And then you go all the way back to when they made the run, when the won the Pac-12 tournament and won an NCAA tournament game. You know, that 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 was such a successful season because of what they accomplished here during March Madness, which the CU team is about to venture into. And then, I mean, you can make a case them really getting hosed out of getting into the tournament his first year. That might have been his most talented team. And they go on to the finals of the NIT. And I think it was Alabama that beat them in the championship game. Right. So there's some other factors in play there when you kind of talk about the best coaching jobs that he's done. And so that kind of transitions me into this question, Jake. Will CU's performance out in Vegas determine whether or not this was a successful season overall? I would say given the structure of this season and given the hindrances of this season, this season has already been a success for the overall record there's no this team has no business winning 20 games like it's it just doesn't like Jabari Walker is phenomenal and he should be a NBA player like that's true but the talent and where it is in its path Jabari Walker is only a sophomore like this is one of the youngest and least developed teams that Tad Boyle has had now the job to get from Tad Boyle and we can't forget this you know getting talent is part of coaching at the college level to get this talent all on campus is an incredible job by Tad Boyle. Cause like this team was so talented that they were able to run through that entire roster. And Oh my God, all of a sudden Julian Hammond is starting like, you know, that came out of nowhere. Um, so that deserves a lot of credit, but to, to say success or not, you know, this will be the best coaching job by Tad Boyle. If they go three and three, win the PAC 12 tournament and make the NCAA tournament. They've only won the Pac-12 tournament once. They've only finished top four in the regular season twice this and last year. So they're already rivaling rivaling things that we have not really seen from the Buffs. I mean, I, I tweeted this stat the other day, Adam, about this is the first positive road record they've had as a team since the 60s. That's crazy. And you know, some of that is overshadowed by the fact that they lost, I think, three games at home by more than 15 points, which is uh, the worst, like among the worst five, six losses at the CU Event Center under Boyle, which was pretty rough. I mean, those were some of the worst games I've seen the Buffs play in Boulder. But in the same sense, 
they showed a lot of bounce back, a lot of fight, a lot of grit, a lot of heart when they go back on the road and they beat some of these teams and they rattle off, you know, basically an NBA style road trip with three games in a week on the road. That stuff's legit. Like this team is, is not to be trifled with. And whether or not Jabari Walker comes back next year, the building blocks for the future for this program are about as bright as they've ever been. Like that's the part that I'm most impressed with because I had a thought to myself after that McKinley Wright team ended with Deshaun Schwartz, dry horn. I'm like, are we about to enter, enter another rebuilding phase of Colorado basketball? Is it going to look a little rough for a few years? Yada, yada, yada. And you started to hear about the talent this summer and you're like, okay, maybe they got a shot at the bubble. Maybe they do, but like, you know, that's a high expectation. And they lost most of that talent. Mason Faulkner, Quincy Allen, like they didn't have most of that talent. And they're still in this conversation where our board's going, are they on the bubble? And we're like, well, not really, but you could make an argument. You mentioned Jariah Horn there. Quick shout out to him hitting the half court game winner. That was a, a fun moment for him. How about What's Dallas up? Walton recently at Wake Forest? Dallas Walton's been like the best player in the country the last three or four games. Has he? I've missed that. That's awesome. Yeah, he's been Good great. for him. Is Deshaun Schwartz, I know he started out pretty well. Has he kept that going this season? He's cooled down a little bit. He hasn't been as hot recently. Uh, I know they're looking forward to a pretty solid run. Hopefully that's their hope in, in the conference tournament out there for them. Let's do some pre-Pac-12 tournament power rankings and predictions here. And how I'd like to kind of go with this, Jake, is with these power rankings, more of uh, let's rank them on terms of their best chances to, to make a run in Vegas and win the whole tournament. And with that, I, I know Arizona state's really hot going into this tournament. So maybe they'd be a little bit higher than their seeding. Colorado's pretty hot. Arizona's hot still, despite what happened one Saturday evening at the CU event center. So I, I think, think you got to go only lose three games over the entire season. You can be qualified as just generally hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I don't think there's any question there. Number one on this, right? There, there's no debate there. Yeah, I mean, they they're, they were the clear winners of the conference. They ran away with it. I mean, honestly, I, I'm not in the business of like giving praise to people in Tucson or Arizona, but holy shit, Tommy, Tommy Lloyd, like, to, like yeah. that, that was unbelievable. And like to think what, I mean, they might be, you know, 29 and two or even 30 and one if KJ Simpson was on that team too, like. That was, that's incredible. Like that F like to turn around that program to where it was under Sean Miller to that in one year, hats off, just hats off. And the conference needed that. The conference needed that big dog program. It helps the conference. I think John Wilner, who is about as dialed in as any reporter in the PAC 12 and is pretty level headed. Didn't he have Arizona on the bottom half of his preseason predictions? Yeah. I mean, everyone out here was, you know, the LA schools and they both had great years, but everyone out here was saying, Hey, this is going to be a little bit of a tough year for Arizona. Yeah, they've got some star power, but we've seen them have star power the last few years and it hasn't really amounted and they've got a new coach, new system. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, like Tommy Lloyd was an assistant coach. Like it wasn't like they just snatched a dude that was like coaching at Illinois or something, you know, like given Arizona's bona fides. I would think they would be a type of program that would snatch a really good coach in another power conference, maybe a Minnesota or something like that, and just install them and they would go from the jump, right? They, they didn't do that, uh, which was an interesting route for them because, you, again, you have to assume Arizona could have gotten more or less anyone they wanted in the country. Two and three, I'm still going UCLA and USC, and I know that CU and Arizona State have closed that gap a little bit here and 
USC's played a lot of close games, uh, but they're still generally winning their games. They, they have lost, you know, their games against Arizona, but I, I'm still going there. Do, do you have the same with your pre-tournament yeah. power rankings? I've got UCLA at number two. I've got USC at number three. Um, my fourth pick, and this may be a, a little bit surprising. Um, hold on, I lost it. You, you give give me your fourth pick first because I'm trying to find my uh, my bracket real quick. I'm sorry. It, it, at this stage, it's kind of four A four B for me with CU and Arizona State, and I'm I'm going to give it to CU because of the fact that they don't have to play in the opening round. Uh, so that's what's going to give the tiebreaker there for me in terms of who I think has the best chance to win this tournament. I'm going to put CU fourth, Arizona State fifth. So I agree with you in the sense that I think CU and Oregon are, or CU and Arizona State are grouped together. I think Arizona State is probably playing the best out of anyone that's not named Arizona right now. Uh, and it's scary coming into a team in March that that's hot. That's that hot. Well, the Buffaloes are that hot too. The problem I have with either of those teams in, in terms of winning it is both of those teams are going to have to go through Arizona. Like, I don't... I don't, I mean, the best case scenario for Colorado is Arizona State's hot and upsets Arizona, then Colorado gets Arizona State instead of Arizona. But more likely, you know, one of those teams is going to have to go through Arizona, if not both of them. And I don't know that either of them are going to get through Arizona. Like Arizona, Arizona State's a rivalry game, Mikhail West out there in Vegas, that environment's going to be crazy. Let's say Colorado gets to Friday, Mikhail West, um, you know, Arizona's lost three games this year. And one of them was to Colorado. They're only unranked loss this year. They're going to be out for blood. Like that's that game's going to mean more to them. It's not just going to be, okay, let's snooze through this one until we get to the title game tomorrow. That game will matter to Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you know, Colorado's lost five straight to Arizona in the PAC 12 tournament. They, this is an annual tradition of the buffs getting their PAC 12 bubble burst by Arizona. So part of me almost wants to say the fourth most likely team to win the Pac-12 tournament is either Washington State or Washington, simply if they get lucky and beat USC or UCLA or both of them. Um, I don't really love either of those teams. I think there's a clear um, upper echelon of the conference right now, and it's the four teams that got seeding, Arizona State and then Oregon. I would say Oregon is probably the sixth best team in the conference still, even with them playing the way they have. Um, but Again, Oregon, Arizona State, and Colorado are all on Arizona's side of the bracket. Um, I mean, you're going to have to go through Arizona to win this tournament in general, but running into them early does not feel good. So uh, to say that I have a clear-cut number four, I don't know. I think that if you had to you know, really put me on the spot, I would still probably say Colorado because they have the bye and they're on Arizona's side. So it's probably, for me, for Colorado – five Arizona state, six Oregon. And then um, you're talking about Washington state, Washington basically is the same. And then who cares about the schools that don't have a chance to win it. Um, but it would be fun if Oregon state, you know, it'd be fun if Oregon state won the conference tournament. Honestly, I want to see Oregon state go in there as a 17, you know, as a 16 seed, a 15 seed. That would be very fun. <laughs> <laughs> Washington state for me is actually sixth. Uh, and it's close between them and Oregon, but Washington state has a winning record away from home this year on the roads. And I uh, use the word soft to describe Oregon in your story on Sunday. And I don't want to discount them because we've seen them make runs 
in March, but I, I think this is a different Oregon team than what we've seen with during Dana Altman's stretch there. So I think it's close, but in, in Washington, you know, they got one of the best scorers in the, in the Pac-12, so they're always dangerous on a nightly basis. But for him to carry that out through four games and four nights, uh, I put them third in the pecking order between that grouping that's pretty close together, uh, the sixth, seventh, eighth. And then we don't need to spend a whole lot of time there at the end. I, I know you uh, are, are talking Oregon State there, but uh, <laughs> I, mean, that's, I uh, that's what you live for in March is the Beavers. Like you want the three win. I mean, it's like there's two types of people in March. And honestly, I'm the type of person that wants to see Arizona and like, you know, Gonzaga in the title game. I want the best teams to win. But most people out here are like, oh, let's see Tulsa Oil State Western Tech upset Duke in the first round. And then all of a sudden you're watching Tulsa Oil Western State Tech play their second round game against Montana East Valley. And you're like, I would never watch this game. Why is this on my TV? And it's like, well, you rooted for the upset where Duke and Michigan lost. Yeah. Do I, I mean, Stanford could win a game. Cal could win a game. But I don't think there's any team at the bottom end of this that really has any shot, right? No, and the thing is, besides, you know, Oregon State and, you know, even Utah's had some solid games this year. Like, they've had some solid performances this year. So any team can beat anyone in the Pac-12. But, you know, Adam and I have been to Vegas a bunch of times. I'll tell you, Arizona has such a distinct advantage with their fan base being there. Oregon's fans travel well. Utah's fans travel pretty well. Colorado's do as well. Um, I don't expect Utah's fans to really travel that well. So those games where you got like California, Washington State are just the most stale environment. And those games are such, you know, up for grabs games. I could see anyone winning those first round games. And frankly, I could see anyone pulling a second round upset. The problem is, is when you start talking about doing this three games in three days, four games in four days, which teams truly have that level of consistency, stamina, and athleticism and depth to carry them through a tournament like this. And those teams are really only Arizona, USC, and UCLA, in my opinion. I don't think there's a realistic shot that that next tier of teams really wins unless there's some tumult around the bracket and they get lucky. Now that the regular season's over, let's go briefly player by player and break them down, Jake, into three categories. The first one's going to be the players that exceeded our preseason expectations. The second group is the players that were pretty much on par with our preseason expectations. And then the last group, the guys that failed to live up to what we thought they would produce throughout this season. Let's start on the positive end. I've got three guys on my exceeded list, and then I've got one, two, three, four, five on on par. And one of those guys I can just throw out now is Will Laughlin. I don't think... We need to spend a lot of time on that. But the failed to live up to, I've got three guys on there. How, how does your list kind of break down in terms of numbers? So I do have one note on Will Laughlin, which is he played, and, and granted he's on scholarship now, but he, he's a walk-on. If you yeah. want to discount Alexander Strading, which the plan was always to put him on scholarship, um, Will Laughlin played the most minutes this season out of any walk-on in the Boyle era. Again, that puts in context for how, you know, smashed together their depth was but uh you know and shout out to will because he provided some good minutes for the buffs so he deserves a shout out stepping in like that and uh being put in that situation but i want to say that the guy who uh you know i've never really been high on him but after watching him this year and how consistent he was and talking around the program and hearing about maybe what his ceiling could be and his intelligence on the court, which was always what was talked about most. Tristan Da Silva was 
really good this year, like really valuable, consistent, showed up a lot of games, provided some stuff away from the ball. And hey, he even ended up with nine points a game, two assists a game, three and a half rebounds a game. He was probably the best finisher at the rim out of anyone on the team outside of Jabari Walker. Um, So I think Tristan De Silva uh, was probably my most positive guy, Adam. Okay. I had him on par, but I was really high on Tristan De Silva coming into the season just based on what he had done in the preseason. But 100%, you talk to a casual CU fan, there's no question that he exceeded you know, most of their expectations. I'm not saying you're a casual CU fan. I, I think that's a good point. I was kind of torn between that one. The guy that exceeded my expectations the most was Nick Clifford. Just the energy that he brought on a nightly basis. I thought we'd saw, see glimpses of that but I didn't think we'd see it night in and night out the way that he provided that. He's totally on my positive list too. The thing is I talked about him coming into the season as one of the better players on the team. And, and you probably remember this from the pregame podcast to those of you who listen to that as well. Uh, I think Neat Clifford's an NBA guy. I've thought Neat Clifford's an NBA guy since I first saw him in high school. Like Neat Clifford is different and you see some of the stuff he does on the court. It's just different. Uh, the thing is, he actually provided some good consistency this year in his sophomore year. And you're talking about, you know, making an improvement in your sophomore year. If you provide some of those flashes in your freshman year and you just sustain some of those flashes over your sophomore year, I think that's a growth. And for him to come away this season as, in my mind, the second best rebounder on the team behind Jabari Walker, like he was a really athletic rebounder. He also stepped in and was basically the best defender on the team for most of the season because Eli Parquet, even when he was healthy, was either playing poorly or was hurt or whatever. And Nick Clifford was a point of attack defender all year for the Buffaloes and facing some of the toughest guys in the Pac-12. And he did a pretty good job of that, like surprisingly good job. Uh, In fact, he had the second best defensive rating on the team behind Jabari Walker. So when he was on the floor, the Buffs were predominantly better on defense. So if if, if you think about it, uh, this guy was a 3A high school kid two years ago. That means he could at 6'6", whatever he is, 6'7", whatever he is, literally run down the court, didn't care about all those five foot five Colorado high school 3A guys, dunk the ball, get back on defense, just stand tall, get a stop and go back the other way. He did not need to know how to shoot. He did not need to know how to play defense realistically at that level. And he's coming out here and becoming one of the best defenders on the team while also providing pretty good shooting. I mean, he shot 40% on the year. And my favorite part about him shooting 40% on the year is he started the year really cold from three, like the first month and a half, he couldn't make a shot. So his shooting towards the back half of the season was just as good as Evan Batty's. Jabari Walker created a lot of hype when he went off against Georgetown in the NCAA tournament. But we did our top bus countdown, Jake. We were kind of trying to temper expectations a little bit. And we knew he was going to have foul trouble issues at times. To me, he's on the exceeded my own personal expectations. I expected there to be times when he was the best player on the court for either team. But the number of times that he was the best player for either team on the court this season was more than I expected this season. You know, led the Pac-12 by a wide margin and double doubles and still in my own personal opinion could come back and and really develop his game even more, but the the growth that he showed from year 1 to year 2 was a little bit more than I expected. To go from a guy who was basically a help defender, backside defender last year 
and a spot-up shooter that provided some nice finishing touch around the rim. Of course, he exploded in that Georgetown game because he got hot from three. But more or less, he was, you know, a rotation guy. He was he was not a key fo- focal point of Colorado's attack last year. And one of the things that I, I keep sticking out whenever I talk about Jabari Walker is I said to him in the middle of last season, like, what's going to happen next year when you're not getting wide open threes because McKinley Wright draws so much attention? He said, I honestly don't know, but I got to figure out how to how to generate offense. Like, I got to figure out how to play like that because this has been awesome, but I know this is not like the way basketball normally is, right? Like, that was more or less what Jabari said to me. And hats off to Jabari. He totally over over exceeded my expectations. You know, I thought Jabari might be the best player on this team. I thought Jabari would be really good. I thought it would be close between him and Evan just in terms of total production, a sophomore and a fifth-year senior, whatever. You know, Jabari's in the conversation for conference player of the year. He was phenomenal. And the funny part was he had a little rough stretch towards January. And I was thinking to myself, and I was so glad I didn't tweet this. Like, where's Jabari Walker been? Like, I was going to say something like that. That was the game. And from that moment that I had that thought going to my head, that was the game Jabari had like 15 in the last like six minutes of that one game. That was like the seven minute mark of that game. I'm like, all right, there's Jabari Walker. So like, I'm so glad I didn't do that because I would have been absolutely crucified on Twitter that day. Um, But he was so good. Like, he was he joined the conversation right there with Andre Roberson for best rebounders in the Boyle era. He actually has a shot if he has some good numbers here in postseason play of averaging a double double for the entire season, which is pretty crazy when you can when you look at his efficiency numbers and consider he was the best defensive player on this team as well. Um you know, for him to be a six eight guy rebounding like that is super impressive in today's day and age in basketball, particularly in conference play. Because I said to you, Adam, before the season, I'm like, it wouldn't be surprise me if he had like a couple 15, 20 rebound games in non-conference play when they're playing centers that are six seven and six six. He did his best stats against dudes that were legit. Like he played best in the biggest moments. And that to me was really impressive about Jabari Walker. He got better at generating his own shots. He got better at finishing at the rim throughout the course of the year. And the thing that was most impressive, and I couldn't fit this into my recap of the Utah game, he had five assists in that Utah game, which was the most of his career. He figured out how to play through a double team as well. So he was, based on your answer, I take it he was definitely on your exceeded list as well. Yeah, so so far I've got Tristan De Silva, Jabari Walker. Uh, I know you've got a third, but I, I think I've got more than three, so I'll go again. Uh, a, 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 you, you had Neat Clifford. I had Neat Clifford as well, so that's three already for, okay. for me. Uh, well, no, so, yeah, Tristan De Silva, Jabari Walker, Neat Clifford is three for me. Fourth guy for me, um, and this one I had to sneak in here because it's a definite was better than my expectations was K.J. Simpson. Um, I expected K.J. Simpson to be a really good player. Eventually, I talked with KJ Simpson. He gave me some kind of McKinley Wright vibes with the way he carried himself, the way he talked about himself, the way he won everywhere he went. I did not expect KJ Simpson to come here and basically be the best point guard on the team already. And maybe some of that is because Mason Faulkner left and he wouldn't have gotten those opportunities. But KJ had a really good year on offense. I mean, averaging two and a half assists a game, seven points a game, you know, that doesn't look great. And only 27% from three, that doesn't look great. But anyone who watched more than five to six Colorado games, I'm sure anyone on this board probably at least watched 15 of them, there was a noticeable difference in Colorado's offense when K.J. Simpson was on the floor. And that 
comes to life in those on off numbers. KJ Simpson had, uh, you know, only an offensive rating of 95, which was like the worst almost on the team out of anyone, which is shocking to think about. But I honestly think a lot of that was they just couldn't figure out a lineup for him most of the year. Like they had him running back a point guard. They had him running back a point guard while Keyshawn Bartholomew was there being the shooting guard. I just don't think the bench unit was that good for Colorado. And that's why those KJ Simpson numbers look bad. But in reality, KJ Simpson was an absolute game changer every time he was on the floor. And I did not expect to see a freshman doing that for the Buffaloes outside of Lawson Luffering or Quincy Allen this year, which neither really got the opportunity to do. Good call there. He was my third and final guy that exceeded my expectations. And like you mentioned there, if you just look at the stat line, it doesn't make it seem like he had as big an impact on this team as he really did. And a lot of it is about kind of the excitement that he draws for the future. Just the, the fearlessness in which he plays the game of basketball, I think, was really big for this for this team. And maybe at times I got him into trouble, you know, with turnovers. But generally for a guy being a freshman to go out there and have no fear. And he's got a cocky element to his game, but it's it's an endearing cockiness. I think there's a difference between. It's a like guy the that, thing with Bones Highland. If you watch the Nuggets, it's like I love this guy. Like he's like he's. You want this guy on your team. You may hate him if he's on the other team, but it's not like an over the top. Like what are you doing? You've lost control of yourself. Yeah, and it's you can tell he's a good teammate, right? And I think that's a key when you're going to play with kind of that that style of play. And you run into CU fans here and there. There's been no player on this team that's. You know, a casual CEO fan will say, hey, Adam, how about KJ Simpson? That really has this fan base excited about the future. I think KJ has really kind of brought the most of that. And, you know, he was the only guy that showed up down in Tucson earlier this year. Uh, so, yeah, he was a guy that we're going to have this debate a little bit later. I think we got asked about projecting the starting lineup for next year. It's going to be interesting because Chad Boyle said that KJ enjoys coming off the bench. But I think as he progresses, maybe that's going to change a little bit. and He's going to want to kind of be the guy out there with that starting group, but uh, really like what, what he brought to the table. Did you have any other guys on your exceeded category? I think that's, that's it to be okay. fair. Yeah. On par, if you're going to talk three point percentage, Evan Batty would have exceeded that, but I just think the general body of work from Evan, there was maybe some aspects like the three point shooting that was a little bit better than we expected, but some, maybe some other areas where, it wasn't quite as consistent as, as we thought. And for, for that reason, you kind of tie it all together. It was pretty similar to what, what I thought he would provide for this team. Yeah, his points per game were up because he shot ridiculously from three. Like, you know, his numbers were up a little bit because his shots went in. And that's awesome that Evan got better at his shot, or at least the numbers were better. I'm not sure how much better Evan's shot actually is. But he hit his shots, and he took good shots, and that shot selection is part of growing as a player. Uh, Evan certainly got better this year, and Evan certainly – um, carried this team at times, including that game out at Utah and the, you know, Evan changed the game against Arizona and Evan's changed a couple games of plays he's made and his energy and enthusiasm. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what I expected out of Evan Batty. And I think Evan Batty would tell you that's exactly what he expected out of Evan Batty this year. Um, he had a really solid year, um, and he's going to go down is, you know, he doesn't, he shouldn't get a statue. He shouldn't have his Jersey retired. He's not like that level of CU player, but he, he's forever a fan favorite, you know, and that same, I mean, Phil Lindsay's different cause he's gone on to an NFL career. That's great. And he was, you know, more elite in college, but in that same kind of vein as, as Phil Lindsay, in terms of 
the fan base loves this guy because this guy loved us and he represented us and he cared about us. And he went to bat for that black and gold every single day. He walked on campus and the hardwood and all that stuff. And so, you know, Evan Batty uh, certainly had a, like I said, had a really good year, uh, but it was exactly what I expected out of Evan Batty. Uh, I didn't expect him, you know, if he had the year Jabari Walker had, that would have been unexpected, but uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't a, he, he was just a really good conference player. He's not supposed to be an elite guy that carries your team. You hear my dog over here. She's munching on a hoof and it's really annoying me. <laughs> I um, didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, next on my on par list is Luke O'Brien. I think if you took maybe early season, it would have failed to live up to expectations, but the energy he brought and, yeah, his game is going to be up and down. I don't think he's ever going to be a guy that you talk about being part of, uh, you know, the discussion of being in the starting lineup. But I liked a, a lot of what he brought, you know, in the second half of the season. And, and that kind of elevated him to, to be on par for me. Where, where does Luke O'Brien factor in for you? Yeah, I can't talk about a guy that I was already high on going for two points and two rebounds a game is over expectations. But I thought Luke O'Brien had a really good year especially closing it out. I think Luke um, got stronger, grew, and made a lot of good decisions with the ball. He got a little bit better at scoring, but certainly the thing that sticks out is his energy and his defense. And, you know, you say he's probably not a starter. I could see him being a starter his senior year, especially as a guy that's not supposed to be like the player. You know, if let's say Quincy Allen and him are playing forward together. You know, that wouldn't surprise me. And Luke O'Brien is tasked with doing the dirty stuff and Quincy's out there trying to get buckets and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I think Luke O'Brien just had a solid year and he met expectations and he continues on his path and he's going to be a part of Colorado basketball in the future. And hats off to Luke for finding a role on this team and finding a role, you know, that wasn't putting up 30 a game like he was in high school. And we talked about Will Laughlin. I had him on this list. I don't know. Would you put him on your exceeded list? We don't need, need to spend a ton of time here. Well, I had no expectations, so he exceeded my no expectations. Okay. Okay. Right. okay. And the last guy on my on par was Julian Hammond, you know, a guy that does a lot of things pretty well, is just a steady guy, even as a true freshman. He's never going to wow you at times like KJ Simpson does, but a guy that you're excited to have in this program for the rest of this season and the next three years is going to be a rotation guy. Again, you're never going to talk about him being all conference or anything like that, but just a, a steady guy to have in the program. Steady guard play is so important in college basketball. And Julian Hammond, uh, at times, I think I would rather Julian Hammond be the quarterback of the football program than what we currently have because he is so steady and he is so consistent and he makes smart plays. Um, and his, and his, I guess his football IQ, his basketball IQ is, you know, is pretty solid. Like he, he's, he, he was good for a freshman and, you know, he probably never expected to really play this year with Javon Ruffin and, you know, Mason Faulkner and stuff like that guys that didn't play. But the fact is the buffs are two and oh, when Julian Hammond has started this year and he's found a role on this team, he's been solid. And I would say he's, you know, he met my expectations, which was he was going to step in here and find a place in the program. And that's exactly what he did. Now, to really comment on his game, I don't think we've seen enough minutes out of Julian Hammond to really know what he could be or what he could project to. I agree with you that he's not going to be an all-conference player, but that's not to say he could be like a guy like Evan Batty where, you know, he ends up being a very valuable player to a program. I'm not saying that's where Julian Hammond's going. I'm just saying we don't we don't have enough data to know 
if he's a guy that should be at Northern Colorado, like Dylan Kuntz, who shout out to him, he had a great year, or he should be a guy like Evan Batty. And I think he could fall anywhere in that. And uh, that wouldn't surprise me from Julian Hammond. In the category of failing to live up to our expectations, a difficult one here is Elijah Parquet. I felt like before the injury, he wasn't quite playing on the level that he was last year. Uh, but you don't, he didn't get the full season, you know, like a Luke O'Brien to get better as the season went along. And so it's harder for me to put him in this category. But even before the injury, I think I would have put him uh, into the point of not living up to my expectations. You know, I thought Eli came out pretty hot in the first couple games and he had a couple moments here and there where it's like, okay, you know, you're figuring some stuff out on offense. You're adding some valuable contributions and shot creation, which is what I wrote about preseason. I was like, Eli could be a guy that could help them get some offense in some tough spots. Um, I never expected Eli to have a statistically better year than he did last year because he was quite literally one of the most efficient players in the country simply because his usage rate was really low. He never really had to do anything but play defense and hit open shots. Um, and he was really good at that. This year, he was stepping into a tougher role. And I think that his defense was okay. But ultimately, yeah, he was below my expectations. He didn't He didn't improve. I think he got slightly a little bit worse this year, if anything. And uh, it was disappointing because I really wanted Eli to take that step and be, you know, that guy that was clearly the conference player of the year on defense, which I thought, you know, early on in the season, there was maybe a campaign that could have grown into that. Um, but, you know, he ends the season with an injury. But even before that, he was a guy that was struggling to get minutes, struggling to finish games. You know, Tad Boyle was pulling him out of the lineup at times frustrated. And this isn't a freshman like Julian Hammond we were talking about. This is a senior. Um, so I think it was just really disappointing in general uh, to see Eli kind of struggle to lead this team in ways that were actually noticeable on the court. Um, and that would have been super valuable as the buffs. I mean, the buffs were, you know, solid guard play away from making the tournament at, outright at not on an at large bid. So, I mean, they lost two, three games that they shouldn't have lost. And that was guard play. Keyshawn Bartholomew got replaced as a starter here late in the season. So I don't really think you could debate that uh, he's on par or exceeded expectations. It, it's, it's been a struggle overall. Now he's had some great moments, uh, it took that charge late in the Arizona game, a key play. It's not that he's a bad basketball player. It just, his fit is not perfect with, with this program. No, it's, it's not. And, you know, I think he might be able to figure it out. Like a lot of people have asked me the transfer question with Bartholomew. I don't, you know, the fact that he's bounced back and taking charges and stuff like that down the stretch of games says to me that this dude wants to fight and this dude wants to stay here. Um, there were moments I was looking at the bench of end of games where he was getting pulled from the final five and it was KJ and Meek running out there instead. And he was moping and just a disaster on the bench. And you would look at him and you're like, who, who he doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to play on this team. He wants to be on the court or not here. Um, but then you think about it and, you know, his shooting percentages were pretty decent. He needed to get better at finishing. His layups were atrocious, but, you know, 46%. Uh, from two and then 33% from three, more or less, like that's decent. Uh, the problem that for me is we, everyone knew Keyshawn Bartholomew could score. And that's the thing everyone was saying at the start of the season. 
he didn't add any real playmaking and his scoring was really up and down. It wasn't consistent. Like he would have 21 night and two the next. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was below expectations for where I thought Keyshawn Bartholomew could get to this year. But I also think that this is a guy when you're projecting the next few years, uh, Keyshawn Bartholomew should be a part of Colorado basketball. And I really hope that, you know, Keyshawn and Tad Boyle, you know, once the season kind of calms down, look at each other and go, you know, there's a fit here. I just got to find a better spot. And the fact that KJ Simpson has developed already into a player that is not only playable, but capable at the Pac-12 level means that you can tailor KJ Simpson's development as a combo guard more towards that playmaking side. And maybe Keyshawn Bartholomew is actually a shooting guard and not a point guard. And then Lawson Lovering, it wasn't his choice to rank himself so high and be the second highest rated signee in, in program history. But as a result, the expectations were really high. And, and frankly, Tad Boyle probably should have held back a little bit in terms of some of the things he said with us in, in the media in the preseason, uh, because it, it maybe set forth unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. And he had a few moments here and there, but you could tell confidence wise, he was just not ready to play at this level before he suffered the injury. Now, that said, I'm going to buy Lawson Lovering stock low because I think he is going to continue to get better and get stronger and more comfortable playing at this level. But even next year, it's going to be a process. And I think it's going to be until he's an upperclassman, until you even start to he gets anywhere close to what his expectations were coming in the front door as such a highly decorated recruit. Here's just an accumulative look at what Lawson Lovering did on the floor. His highest stat was field goal attempts, 43. His second highest stat was uh, total rebounds, 35. His third highest stat was points, 34. His fourth highest stat was fouls, 33. He more or less had more fouls than anything else that he did on the floor. Uh, And the Buffs needed someone to go out there and take some fouls sometimes. Like they didn't, they needed that, that depth in the front court. The problem was, is, is Lawson Lovering was only a little bit better than what Will Laughlin actually provided um, to the Buffs this year, which is, you know, tough to say about your top recruit versus a walk-on. And, you know, Lawson finishes the year with 13 made field goals. I'm not going to say a guy with 13 made field goals had a good year or was beyond or even met my expectations. You know, uh, I wanted to see him be a better rebounder and really use his size to do that. Um, I think that the fact that he didn't attempt a single three, let alone make one, he didn't attempt one is sad because we all know he has that shooting touch and he didn't feel either confident enough to pull from there, or he doesn't, he's lost in the rhythm of the game or something. I do think that he got a little bit better at finishing at the rim as the season went along a little bit, but I mean, we're looking at like minuscule gains with loss and lovering, if anything, and you're right. You should probably buy your stock on loss and lovering right now. If you're going to, because this is a guy that has a chance to be really good and special for this program, but you're looking at their roster for the next few seasons and you're like, okay, Evan Batty's gone. Jabari Walker could go to the draft. Lawson Lovering's their only guy in the front court returning. I mean, Tad Boyle has to be looking at transfer options for the front court right now because there is no indication that Lawson Lovering is ready to play at this level yet. And again, this is not to say that he won't get there because a seven-foot guy with that type of touch is so special. Um, but you hear the board saying Ben Mills, Ben Mills. I think you're just doing a white tall guy thing because if you know ball, 
Like there's a clear difference between what Ben Mills is doing and what Lawson Lovering is doing and what they're working to accomplish. Um, and I just think the game was a little bit too fast for Lawson Lovering, which is something that happens for some freshmen. And I think he deserves some time to actually get up there. Like you said, he didn't, ta- he didn't announce to the world, Hey, I'm the, I'm the top, I'm a top 50 recruit and I'm unbelievable. And you know, only Josh Scott was better than me and blah, blah. He didn't say any of that. That was, that was us. You know, we messed up. I mean, not literally me and Adam, but, you know, that's that the recruiting service is messed up there, if anything. So uh, you have to give Lawson your chance. Let's move on to a couple other topics before we jump into the mailbag. We did get a question about this, and I know it's on everybody's mind right now, whether or not these are going to be Jabari Walker's final games as a buff. I did find it interesting comments he made to Pat Rooney recently where he said, He's going to be in or he's going to be out. He's either going to say, I'm coming back to Colorado or I'm going pro. He doesn't plan to test the waters like we saw George King do a couple times. You see this becoming more commonplace in college basketball where they go through the evaluation process and then make a decision. I was surprised by that, Jake, because I thought if I was advising Jabari Walker and I, and I shouldn't be because I thought Andre Robertson made a huge mistake by leaving early and he proved us all wrong. So, uh, I can admit that I'm wrong with a lot of these guys. David Bakhtiari, I thought it was silly that he was leaving Colorado when he did, and he's one of the highest paid players in the NFL. So, but I just, I feel like he would be best suited to go through that process, get the feedback, then make the decision. Maybe that's part of Tad Boyle wanting to enter the transfer portal and not having this looming question about Jabari Walker, whether he's going to come back or not. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes there, but it seems like, that would be the best course of action for him. But he says he's going to be in or out, which at this point would lead me to think the chances of him going pro are stronger than him coming back. You know, I, and I'm not saying what you're saying is happening, but it would be absolutely foolish that anyone in the program would be pushing their best player out just so they could enter the transfer portal quicker. Like to me, the program is going to give Jabari Walker all the time and support he needs, just like they have in the past, like George King. Um, it is really odd to me that that's something he said, because like George King and like other guys who've done this before, it makes a lot of sense to go ask some people, some questions about your future. Like that's free. Like, you know, you hit your, uh, you hit your deductible on the, on the insure on health insurance. You're going to go see some extra doctor visits just to make sure you're okay. Right. Like that's free time for Jabari Walker to go figure some stuff out. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if he said those things and then went back against his word. If he goes yeah. and enters the draft and he he realizes that it might not be where it is. You know, you, you just look at some mock drafts real quick. Jabari Walker is not in the first round right now, according to most services. Jabari Walker is probably around that 45 mark, 33 at best, you know. Um, and Now, those mock I, drafts do suck at this point, right? Because they don't they know suck. who all is going to be in the mix. And nobody's watching Colorado basketball that's doing those yeah. drafts. Like, let's be honest. Um, so... You know, I've seen, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie leave early to be that type of draft pick. I've seen Andre Roberson, you know, drafted in that kind of range-ish, you know. Like, it wouldn't surprise me to see Jabari Walker leave and want to be drafted in the second round. Um, Especially because you consider how good his year was. Can Jabari Walker come back to the college level and have a better year than the one he just had? I think that's a good question to ask when you are doing this. Um are the players around him going to make him better next year? I would say the buffs get better next year 
but you're also looking at it with Evan Batty leaving and Lawson Lovering questions. Jabari Walker might be their starting center next year. And Jabari Walker is a small forward at best, maybe a power forward, maybe a shooting guard. He's a wing player at the next level. Does it help Jabari Walker's development to get all of his game reps in the paint rather than out on the perimeter where he's going to need to become a point of attack and really good defender at the NBA level unless he's trying to turn himself into a Robert Covington kind of help side, backside guy? I, I don't know. I'm not an NBA scout. I'm not an NBA coach. I can't answer those questions and tell you what's best for his development. Um, you know, Montrez Harrell's six, seven, he's a center in the NBA. He's figured it out too. Like there, there's guys that have figured it out that are smaller and play out of position now. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. I lean towards, he would leave college early, um, right now towards today. You know, you asked me two weeks ago and I was saying I would lean towards him coming back, but he's the guy that's led the pack 12 and double doubles. You know who did that two years ago, Adam? I don't know. Who's that? Zeke Naji who's been awesome for the Nuggets this year when he's been healthy. And Zeke Naji was awesome at Arizona. And Jabari Walker's not putting up the numbers Zeke Naji did at Arizona. But like Zeke Naji, Jabari Walker's got a pretty good stroke from three. And like Zeke Naji, Jabari Walker is a guy that could probably go out and guard the perimeter who was actually an inside guy in college. So uh, I think there's a lot of good comparisons when you talk about body comps and you know, situation comps with Jabari Walker and guys who've done it in the past. And I just think there's a lot of momentum for him to leave. And the fact that his dad's an NBA player means he's more connected. The fact that his dad's an NBA player means that he probably uh, is going to get more looks just because there's the name attached and people know his father and what a player his father was. And, you know, I'm not a big nepotism guy, but in the same sense, you know, they're not putting players on rosters like Austin Rivers. They're not putting Austin Rivers on a roster for 10 years just because his dad's doc. Like, you know, if Jabari Walker might get his foot in the door because of his dad, but if he gets into the NBA, that's going to be because of Jabari Walker. Jabari Walker has been phenomenal in college. So, um, yeah, I, I lean towards he would be leaving. Um, but if he comes back, I would probably pencil him in as conference player of the year. And that's assuming he doesn't even really get that much better. Uh, so, it, it's a toss up for me, but you know what? A sophomore, this would be the youngest player to leave Tad Boyle's program. I believe we Andre was a junior, I think. Right. But I, I think off the top of my head, he would be the youngest player to leave Boyle's program besides Alec Burks. It would be him and Burks and Burks obviously was the guy, you know, leading the big 12 in scoring Jabari Walker was a freshman two years ago that not many people had heard about. Well, it is important to note that they do have one scholarship to play with, even if Jabari Walker does decide to come back. So if he changes his mind, does test the water, and there is kind of that period where you're in limbo as a CU program, like you say, you can go out and, and look for a center. Now, those guys don't grow on trees, and, and they're hard to find in, in the transfer portal, guys that uh, would have upside to come in and play right away at center. But that would at least, if you could lock that in there and, and make Jabari realize, hey, you're not going to have to play the five if you come back, I think would be good. Uh, but it's tough to find those bigs in the transfer market, like I said. And you, But you almost kind of have to, right? Joe Horlbert, we can talk about him a little bit. I expect him to come in and have an impact. But he's going to be a little different player than Lawson Lovren. He's going to be more of kind of a perimeter big. Uh, it's interesting. I think you can make some comparisons to the last guy that CU got out of North Dakota in Austin Dufault, I think maybe 
Hurlburt's a little bit more in that mold than what we saw from Lawson Lovering. And, and yeah, you can't go into next year with Lawson Lovering in as your starting center. I think you still need to develop him a little bit. Uh, the question I guess there is, Jake, do you have optimism that they could find a quality big in the transfer market? I mean, they certainly have a lot to sell to, the, to that potential candidate, uh, you know, early playing time and a chance to win a lot of football, a lot of basketball games early playing time and a chance to make the NCAA tournament with you as the starting center. I think they've got a lot to sell. Um, I think they are in a position almost to sell as high as anyone because, you know, anyone can look at their recruiting and go, okay, me as this veteran big man, I'm not going to get out recruited by someone under me. Whereas, you know, you go to Arizona tomorrow, somebody could join the class that's better than you. Um, You know, so this is a good situation to walk into. I'll also say that between Lovering and Hurlburt being more perimeter to not tenacious players, you know, not those big burly inside guys. Neat Clifford is such a good rebounder. And if Jabari Walker comes back, those guys provide a lot of the tenacity inside and Tristan De Silva finishing on offense that your big can be more of that perimeter presence rather than that dominating paint presence. So even keeping that in mind towards what they're looking for on the on the portal, if they get someone that's six, nine as a center, that's more of a perimeter guy, or, you know, even a seven footer that's known for his shooting touch or something like that, when not rebounding, I wouldn't be surprised if that's just okay. And that works out because the piece is already here. Tristan De Silva's rebound numbers will go up next year. You know, Jabari Walker will have a ridiculous year if he's here again. If not, I think Nick Clifford could average eight or nine rebounds next year. Like, so they don't need a guy that's going to come in here and get 12 rebounds a game, which I think is really valuable because Boyle can narrow in exactly what he is looking for. And also with Hurlbert, he's, he's not a guy that's going to come here and need to be, Hey, we're going to need you to do this. He can be his own guy, at least at first and kind of start to fit in to the system of the program. All right, let's jump into the Buff Stampede mailbag. Monstrous Joe asked, when the Buffs win the Pac-12 tourney, how many of the Tad haters will still complain about the weaknesses in the program? Every Jake, single here, one of them. Every single one of them. So here's the thing with Tad haters, though. They go quiet when they do well. They just wait for their opportunity. They're, they're a very patient bunch. So you're not going to hear from them. I, I disagree with you, Jake. You're not going to hear from them. But the next, the second they have an opportunity, they will. But here's the thing. You can go on Alabama's message board, and they're complaining about something. You, know, you could go on Georgia's football board right now, and they're, they're finding some issue to whine about. So I wouldn't even say it's the, the vocal minority. It's a very, very small percentage of CU basketball fans that are tad haters. And the best thing to do there is just to ignore them. But if, if CU wins the tournament, you're not going to hear a, a peep from them. If they win the Pac-12 tournament and get bounced in the first round of the NCAA dance, they'll be right back. Like, you know, they'll be back five days later. Like that's, you know, or if let's say they they even go to the Sweet 16 or if they win the NIT or some crazy thing like that. This summer when they when they lose a recruit or whatever, you know, they they uh, have a practice where Tad Boyle says something mean about CSU. They'll be back like they're always back. Like, it, you know, the, some of the most consistent things 
as a human is the sky's blue most days you wake up, the sun rises at a certain time, and Tad Boyle will be hated on in the Buff Stampede board. Like, it's just, that's what it is. Like, it, it's, it's not that many people, though. It's just it's a like few three. people. It's like literally yeah. three people, um, which is, it's so funny. And honestly, I'm all about bits. Like, I love a good bit. Shout out to you three people that are running this bit to the ground because you guys are so above and beyond. It's like basically the Colin, it's it's basically the Skip Bayless, LeBron James is not Michael Jordan, not top five player in the NBA. Like it's so above and beyond lud- lud- uh, lunacy at this point, this bit. Like shout out to you for keeping it on that you can construe your mind to believe this way. Um, yeah, like Boyle's awesome. Just Boyle, Boyle's awesome. They should, you know, Someone said the other day that they should build a court. Uh, they should rename Sox Walseth Court to to Tadball Court. I'm not there. I think you got to honor Sox Walseth, but you should change the name of the arena to Tadboyle Arena. Well, you got to find uh, a naming partner there at some point. I know they've been trying for many years now, but on the t- topic of Tadboyle, he doesn't walk on water. And the Tadboyle haters will say, well, you're settling, settling for a, a level of mediocrity. But the response will always be, who the hell are you going to hire if you get rid of them? And it's not going to be, I can pretty much guarantee you, not with 100% certainty, but maybe with 99% certainty, that that next coach will not accomplish what Tad Boyle has accomplished the last 12 years. And so that's always a rebuttal, I think, to somebody that criticizes him. And you have to throw in the appearance in – 2020 because they would have gone to a tournament that that year so when they talk about these streaks of them not going to the tournament i think that's one little thing that they try to kind of tweak out of there uh but yeah it's he's he's the best that cu can get and and, you know you look on the football side and they would kill themselves for a tad boil type of of coach the last 12 years all i've been asking for for 12 years over there is to make bowl games consistently and not embarrass the the school like, you know, talk about doing that for the buffs. Like the basketball team makes the postseason almost every single year, at least one of the tournaments. They sure as hell do not embarrass the school. In fact, if you ask me, and one of the reasons why I went to see you initially is because the student fan base and the, uh, the student section, the C unit was awesome. And Tad Boyle made basketball fun at CU, you know, and I talk to kids every single day in my class, kids that are in high school that want to go to CU, that are touring CU. And one of the reasons why they think about going to CU is because of the awesome environment I, the basketball program has set up where they have some of these upsets. They have some of these court storms. You get that amazing college experience of sports and sports being good with the basketball program. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Boyle's had his blunders, no doubt. Like, Boyle's had his, his missteps. And I think this year at times, Boyle's not been the best. Like, Boyle's had some really bad issues this year in game coaching situations. I don't like some of his comments after the game at times, but ultimately, like, this is within a season that I'm already talking about. It's one of his best. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say I can do better than Tad Boyle or he should have done this, this, and that, like, from a from a, from a a 5,000-foot view. Like, I don't know. Tad Boyle obviously knows, and Tad Boyle is one of the best coaches in the country. I mean, what is he, the longest tenured Pac-12 coach now? If not, I think it's what, Dana Altman? It's, it's them too. So, uh, yeah, like, Boyle is – Boyle's consistent. We know what we're going to get. And like I said – with what this program is and if Jabari walk comes back next year and the development we've seen and the recruiting tab Boyle has done very recently here, 
it lends me to believe that the Buffs might be even entering a better phase of the Boyle era. I'm not saying that's for certain. I'm just saying, given their recruiting track record and Tad Boyle's development only getting better over time, I think that the Buffs could be entering like a, a, a second better phase, like a golden era of the golden era, so to speak. But I, I don't want to say we're there yet because we're not. Here's a quick one to answer. P.A. Buff asked, is it totally done with Evan Batty and Eli Parquet that they will not be back next year? And the answer is yes. Uh, have you ever heard anything throughout this whole process that's indicated anything other than that? I certainly haven't. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if Evan Batty just never leaves Boulder. Like the, you know, like the, the people talk about the Boulder bubble. I'm so I'm surprised that like Evan Batty even goes on the road trips, like that he's able to escape the Boulder bubble. I thought he just like, you know, like he's like a man in like, what, what are those, the snow globes that he gets stuck in? <laughs> I imagine Evan Batty just is stuck in the boulders, the Boulder bubble like that. But yeah, they're gone. They're gone. Well, Ted is, has shared this, that he's already offered Evan a coaching opportunity on his staff whenever that happens, whenever Evan is done playing. And before the season, I was walking, it was the day, I think it was October 16th, the day they had the open scrimmage and the football game. And I was walking from the football stadium to the CU event center and Evan just happened to be there. So we spent 15 minutes talking and just kind of talking about this being the last year. And Evan just flat out said, well, this is not it for me in Boulder. I'm going to be right back. This is home for me now. So uh, it was never even in question that he's coming back once he's done playing, but he's got to go out there and experience playing overseas. Take advantage of that. I mean, who would turn that down when you have a chance to you know, earn some money and, and get to go travel the world? And he's the type of person that's going to eat that up 100%. So it'll be fun to track his progress. There's so many former CU buffs that are playing overseas now. And with Elijah, it just has been the plan there as well. Uh, Folsom 104 asked, is CU officially a round ball school now? Jake, I'll let you lead here. Um, well, they've been a basketball school for 12 years. If you want to look at performance and record, like, they, like they've been a basketball school for maybe even in going back to the patent era a little bit. Like they're a basketball school, man. Like in terms of notoriety, what we do year over year, all that stuff. The reason why what keeps coming, what makes me want to come back to Boulder as a CU fan, it's basketball, but you want to look at Q score and to break out my media professor thing, what Q score is. And Adam knows this. It's basically if, if you were to rank the most popular celebrities and things in the world um, and the topics and the traffic they generate, it's an internet kind of term and TV term. Like the Q score for LeBron James is higher than Nikola Jokic. More people are interested in what's going on with LeBron James. The Q score for Odell Beckham Jr. is probably even higher than it is for Nikola Jokic. Um, so if you were to rank like most important things, the things that drive people, the things that drive audience attention, the football school or the football program is so far above and beyond the basketball program. It, it's not even a competition. Like, um, you know, part of that is because our, our country is really based on football and stuff like that. But the history of this football program is is tough to beat. And a lot of the money was young and in college at the time when the football program was good. And maybe that's going to change over time with the demographics because of 
we've now had almost 20 years of the football program sucking and the basketball program being good and people starting to, you know, get money that we were in college 20 years ago and actually having money to donate back to the school. So the demographics of the CU fan base might be changing over time a little slightly with becoming more basketball oriented and the money being driven and generated by the basketball program. But ultimately it's, it's a football school. It, It will be for quite a while and football just it just drives the fan base and something Tad Boyle said to me you know probably in 2014-2015 the best thing that could happen for our basketball program is our football program gets really good you said that really well Jake and there's a big part of me that wishes CU could be a basketball school I would love to focus a lot more of our resources into covering this program but the bottom line is you know we do have a bottom line and you look at our game threads and just our view counts on on a lot of stuff. Jake, your work should be getting more traction than it gets based on the success that CU has in in, how, you know, how well you've done with your, your game stories and and how good of a read they are. Um, And they do get interest. Don't get me wrong. It's not like you're doing all that work for not, but, it should get more interest and excitement than it does. And it's unfortunate it doesn't, but see you as a football I cover school. the Rapids too, Adam. I know what it's like when yeah. nobody puts on your stuff. <laughs> but yeah, my wife and, and her family, they're all KU fans. So I was out in Lawrence for senior day on Saturday. And just, I mean, that that's obviously one of a handful of schools that are on that level to where you go to a convenience store and the cashier can talk about, the walk on it being T hand senior day, like that, that's pretty rare stuff. And certainly that's not a, a fair comparison for, for CU basketball on any level, but there's just a different level that when you talk about a basketball school and what it is like in that community, that CU just is never going to get to that point. And I, I know Tad Boyle brings up, why can't it be like that when, you know, they, they have just a raucous atmosphere, like against Arizona, why can't it be like that all the time? And it, you know, frankly, it just is the reality of things that it, it, I, I don't know why it can't be, but it's not going I can, to. I can tell you the biggest inhibitor of CU being a basketball school is the pro sports in Denver. You can drive 30 minutes down the road and see a better product. And frankly, you know, you want to talk about atmospheres. Yeah, the atmosphere of the Nuggets Pelicans game isn't going to be as good as Buffs, Arizona, but the Buffs Montana State game isn't going to have the atmosphere of that Nuggets Pelicans game. So, you know most Nuggets games are better, better to attend. And I mean, I'm a massive Nuggets fan, massive Buffs fan. I I just love basketball. We talk about these basketball schools, Adam, how many basketball schools are there really around the country? It's it's Duke, it's Kansas, and then Kentucky and the list start Arizona. The list starts. You keep going. There's, there's the Syracuses. There's kind of that next level too. Well, but you're probably, yeah, the thing in common with all of them and neither, none of them are in cities with professional sports. None of them. Um, and there's only about 10 to 15 of them in the country. And all of them have had football programs that have historically not been good at all. Like they've been the buffs last 20 years, but for, for, for 50 to hundred years, you know, like, uh, so I think there's just so many factors that go into it. I mean, I was talking about this with a play-by-play guy, uh, over the weekend that, that does one of the Denver sports teams. And he said, you know, Denver's the smallest Metro area, the smallest DMA TV market, with all four major sports or all five, if you want to include MLS in the country. So we're talking about that boulders in Denver's DMA. 
And Boulder is like, you know, Lawrence is close enough to Kansas City where you can go and catch a Royals game. Like, that's not a problem. Tucson's close enough to, to Phoenix where you can go catch a Diamondbacks game. But in terms of going night in, night out to sporting events, if you live in Boulder, you could go to every single Nuggets and Avalanche game. It's not a problem. If you live in, in, in Tucson, you're not going to every single Coyote. No one's going to Coyotes games. But no one, you can't really go to any single Coyote. You know, you can, can't. That's not, you're not making an hour and a half, two hour drive every day. You can make a half hour drive every day. People commute back and forth with Boulder every single day. I did it for years. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I think that's honestly the biggest factor we don't talk about when we talk about CU football being worse since 1990 and Colorado basketball not getting that crazy fan environment despite being an upper echelon school in basketball the last 10 years is everything in Denver demographically changed in 1996 or yeah, 1994, when the Nuggets got, when the, when the Avalanche got here, when the Rockies got here in 1993. Um, and I mean, the Broncos really exploded in the eighties with, in terms of their success and also the NFL exploded in the eighties. And I mean, the Nuggets are still obviously fourth in this town. Um, and they've never really had that time period. They were really good in the seventies, uh, in the ABA, they had a run in the eighties. They were decent. They were decent in the nineties. They were decent in the aughts for a little bit, but the Nuggets have never really had that. Uh, and I just think a part of when we talk about CU as a basketball school, this is just not a basketball state. And part of that is because the Nuggets have never really been a dominant franchise and college basketball in the state was never all that. I mean, we don't have like great college basketball players that have even come out of this state, you know, pre what Tad Boyle, Tad Boyle is one of the first great college basketball players to come out of this state. I mean, Scott Wedman's up there too, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's very small pre 1970. And that's part of the fact of growing in a state that's growing and in, in a transplant state and all these different things. So I think it's a lot of demographic and logistical things that go into the fact that this isn't that ruckus basketball school, but ultimately it's, it, I really do blame it on the fact that you can go to any single nuggets game and those are 20,000 people in the same DMA that are more interested in the Nuggets than, than your product at a basketball school um, just up the road. And, and you look at some of this in, in, in even Tempe. Phoenix is the third biggest city in, in the country, I think, now, actually, by uh, entire demographic metro area statistics. So ASU struggles to get attendance right now, too. It's because people would rather go to the Suns games. It's, it's the same market of fans. There's only so many fans in a DMA. Ellie Buff asked, will Quincy Allen and Javon Ruffin be good to go for next season? He also asked, what is the plan for Lawson Lovering during the offseason to get him to improve? The first part there, Quincy Allen and Javon Ruffin, if forced to right now, could probably play right, right now, right, Jake? I think, I think both are cleared for contact and have been practicing a little bit. So yeah, like they, they should be, they're fine. They're, they should be fine. Uh, no lingering effects. And then as far as loss and lovering, as soon as he kind of recovers from his injury, I think the biggest thing with loss and lovering is he needs to put on some strength. He needs to put on weight, which he's already been doing on campus. And he needs to gain some confidence. He needs to, to, to find, you know, his space. And with Evan Batty leaving campus and, even if a, a transfer forward comes in, no one's necessarily penciled in for all of those 40 minutes at the five yet. I mean, you can't even pencil in a single minute for next year at the five right now. So even if a forward comes in and says, you know, we're going to play this guy at the five a little bit, Lawson Lovering has the potential to play, at least in his mind, 
oh, if I figure this out, I could play 25, 30 minutes a game, right? So putting himself on that path to think that way, I think is a huge thing. And I think part of that is just going back to basics, doing a lot of finishing drills, doing a lot of reading off the rebounds. Where's the rebounds going when the ball is shot here and there? Because a big part of Tad Boyle, obviously, is rebounding. And Lawson Lovering isn't going to get on the floor if he's not getting rebounds at seven feet tall for Tad Boyle. Lawson did miss a lot of bunnies and practices leading up to the season, but he was generally better on a day-to-day basis in practice than he showed in game. So I, I think he, like you said, the key is to put on some, some mass to his frame. So Steve Englehart will be working hard on that side of things and he will get better with continued repetition practicing at this level, but it's still, no matter what it's going to take, more repetitions in games. And I don't think there's any way around that. Yeah. He needs games. He, he just needs games. And I think the biggest thing for loss and lovering is being healthy and in a good place in non-conference season next year. If he can put together a stretch of five good games in the non-conference slate next year, you're Todd Boyle. You know, you have something, if not, it's going to look pretty tough. Yeah, you can make an argument confidence is more even more important than adding that weight, right, with him at this point? Yeah, I mean, the dude knows how to put a basketball in the net from four feet away. Like, clearly, like he's playing college basketball. But having the confidence to do that and knowing you can do that if you just put your mind to it, I think is almost more important than putting on the weight to get through contact to be able to do that. Now, you look at K.J. Simpson even – his confidence grew so much and it's not like he's putting on that much weight between two weeks of basketball in the middle of the season. KJ Simpson had some finishes here the last week or two, the last three weeks that he would not have had early on in the season. And I think that's simply because he knows I can go put my hand like this in this situation and that'll get me into the hoop. Or if I'm fending off a body, I can do this. And that's just learning the game and the speed of the game at this level and having the confidence to say, okay, I can still play my game through this speed. Um, that strength aspect certainly will help, but it, it, at, we there's un, it's undeniable that Lawson Lovering is talented. So it's just about breaking through and having that confidence. And like I said, clearing out Evan Batty and actually having the space to go, okay, it's mine. If I got, you know, it's mine. If I put my mind to it, that can put a player on a path. Mile high crew asked, what does Quincy Allen bring to the team next season that we can look forward to? Let's go really quick with these. We're starting to get in a lot of next season stuff, Jake, and we've got a lot of months to go over that. Yes. Uh, but, but with Quincy Allen, I mean, the, the first thing that stands out when you see that guy is just his length. It's pretty next level stuff. He's really, really long. He's really, really smooth. Um, he can handle the ball. He passes it decently well for a wing of his size. Um, he is a really good shooter. I mean, people wanted on the board this year were even saying, Tad Boyle doesn't recruit shooters. Well, they led the conference in three-point shooting. I don't know what you want them to do. And K.J. Simpson's a really good shooter, and so is Quincy Allen. So Dad Boyle's obviously recruiting shooters. Um, yeah, I mean, you talk about a 6'7", 190 small forward, and, and I know he's already put on weight, so he's probably and, – and it looks taller to me, but, you know, he's probably 6'8", 200 in reality right now, 6'8", 210. I mean, 
that's LeBron. Like, that's the size of LeBron. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to compare Quincy Allen in terms of playing ability to LeBron, but my point is he is already at that body build that is perfect for basketball and perfect for the NBA. He's small enough where it's aesthetically pleasing and you have that style and you can dribble and you can shoot and you, you can jump and you're athletic and you can get up and it looks cool, but he's also big enough to dominate with size. He is that perfect size fit for basketball. And I think the only other guys off, I mean, Neat Clifford's almost there. He's just a little skinny. Um, the only other guy that really comes to my mind that was that way in the Boyle program right off the top of my head was Xavier Johnson. You know, Xavier Johnson was that size and Xavier Johnson's gone on to a really good pro career. And if he didn't tear his Achilles, he may have gone on to a way better college career as well. Yeah, let's go kind of rapid fire with some of these questions. Dorno nine asked, what are your reasonable expectations for Joe Hurlburton year one? I mentioned kind of a comparison with Austin Dufault. Would that be fair for him? Yeah, I, I just come in and, and provide some good minutes if he isn't to red shirt. Um, and you know, uh, we've seen Luco, I mean, let's just say Joel Herbert has the year Luke O'Brien just had as a sophomore. I think that would be a successful freshman year. Yeah. Real quick here. I will say, I expect him to be a little bit more polished offensively, especially from the perimeter than Lawson was year one. Do you have those same similar expectations? I need to see him on campus. Really? I, I'm someone that yeah. I have a hard time really discerning anything from YouTube, to be honest. Yeah. PA Buff asked, what's your best guess on next year starting five? It's tough because we don't know if Jabari is going to be back. Will Keyshawn be back? Will they bring in a quality transfer? A lot of tough things to, to, that we don't know about right now, but clear, clearly the shoe-ins are Nick Clifford and Tristan De Silva, and then a lot of question marks. Yeah, I would say, you know, the biggest question mark with KJ Simpson is the fact that he likes coming off the bench. And if he's yeah. just saying that, or if he actually wants to take that step and be part of the starting lineup, what the deal is there, I would say the three clear, you know, I don't know, starting five, final five guys, you know, cause that's really what matters in basketball. It's going to be Nick Clifford. It's going to be KJ Simpson in that final five with Tristan De Silva. Those are three guys that are there. Um, now, Jabari Walker clearly would be there if he comes back. If they add a, a, a transfer that they think is capable and probably will be able to play right away, he's one of those five guys. And if, let's just say, everything goes to hell and Jabari Walker leaves and they don't get someone for some reason, like the Mason Faulkner situation, I would say Keyshawn Bartholomew and KJ Simpson are probably starting next to each other at guard. And then it's Tristan De Silva and... Uh, Tristan De Silva and uh, Nick Clifford in the front court. And then it's going to be a toss up to see if the buffs are going to have Lawson Lovering out there, or it's going to be someone like maybe a three guard lineup and they're small, like with Julian Hammond or even Luke O'Brien out there to, to add some valuable minutes. Oh, I'm forgetting Quincy Allen. Uh, but it, yeah, it, it would be, it would if, be if Jabari, if Jabari, if Jabari goes pro, then I think Quincy Allen's chances of being a starter uh, are high are pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I'm, I just spaced on him off the top of my head, but yeah. So you're looking at, you know, Quincy Allen is probably, you know, I put Quincy Allen probably neck and neck with Keyshawn Bartholomew right now for who's going to be a starter next year. And I think that's a pretty fair spot to put each of them. Uh, 
But it, it's so early. I mean, you need to see some some exhibitions in the offseason. And, you know, certain lineups work better than than others. I mean, let's just say for some reason, Tristan De Silva and Quincy Allen are awful together when they're on the floor. I don't see why that would happen. But let's just say that's the case. And Quincy Allen's your best scorer and Tristan De Silva is one of your better defenders or something like that. Well, if you're down, you're going to have Quincy Allen out there. If you're if you're up, you're going to have Tristan De Silva out there. Like it, it's just so situational. And we've seen the starting lineup change so many times this year for the buffs. And honestly, it's not that big of a deal. PA buff also asked, what does CU and he's pointing at Rick George and Tad Boyle here need to do to take CU basketball to the next level. Are there any serious plans for facility improvement for CU's men's basketball program? I know Rick was talking about making upgrades to the bowl in the CU event center. I and then we got to get the naming rights at some point, bring in a little bit more revenue. But I'll throw this to you, Jake. Is there anything that really stands out when you look at something that's holding this program back from a facilities or support standpoint? I think the pie in the sky would be to a new arena. I mean, that arena is old. It is out of date. Um, I mean, they've done a solid job keeping it upgraded and, and making renovations, particularly under Rick George. And, you know, I've been one of Rick George's biggest critics, but that's something I, I think often gets overlooked is Rick has done a really good job of keeping that place uh, a decent place to watch a basketball game. Um, but it still is really old. And let's just say they built a new arena and there are some luxury areas or something like that, which Rick George loves that luxury stuff, thanks to the Crawfords, right? Um I think that would be very valuable to this program uh, in something that would, you know, obviously benefit them for a long, long time. Now, you know, building a new arena is obviously challenging for a lot of reasons, but I also look at new arenas around college basketball. And I think about USC and Oregon, um, the Galen center, isn't all that amazing to watch as a basketball experience. And a lot of times with the new building codes, arenas are harder to improve upon in terms of sight lines right now than they were in the past because they get grandfathered in. And I think about it in the sense of, if you ever watched a Minnesota FC game, the loons, they built one gigantic stand for their supporter section that just goes straight up and it's called the wall. And I would love to see something like that in college basketball, where it's the student section is more or less just stairs that go straight up behind one basket. Right. So I think that would obviously be the number one thing that could help this program. Um, number two, I, I just think the marketing department is awful. Like, I mean, I could I could have this conversation for an entire hour about their missteps. I talk to boosters about this all the time. And, you know, they complain to me about stuff with the marketing department. You know, I think they did a better job this year, but ultimately, is it the C unit that's the student section or CU Barstool? And CU Barstool is all sorts of problematic in all sorts of ways that I could get into. Uh, if you just search Barstool or Dave Portnoy on the internet, you can find those problematic things. Um, and the student section is supposed to be a welcoming place. It's not supposed to be a place where you have to think about homophobic stuff or, you know, racism or misogyny. And for some students that maybe feel the student section is being run by CU Barstool, that's something that could happen. So I think that the fact that the marketing department kind of took away some of the social media account access from the students and took away some of the uh, running of the C unit away from the students and started controlling that, it allowed CU Barstool to grow. And I think ultimately the C unit 
is in a really bad place right now and they need to do a good job of marketing the C unit to fans and to students. They did a really good job of getting students to the games this year. That environment was great. The season ticket holders did not show up a lot this year, which was a shame. And, you know, I, I, what can you do for that? Well, one of the things, maybe improve your parking situation. The, the, the way in and out of parking in that arena sucks. The garage, the spaces are too small. Like there's all sorts of little quality of life things that, that could get better as a fan that would make it so much better to attend a CU game when you're already fighting traffic up from Denver. But you want to talk about improving facilities to get recruits or development or whatever. They're already recruiting at about as high of a level as they could, in my opinion. They're already developing about as high as a level as they can now that they've built this facility, you know, under Mike Bone. Uh, is that facility already starting to get a little bit maybe dated? Yeah, but you know what? It's a college basketball facility. All you need is a couple gyms and a workout room. I don't think that college basketball players need some of the things that the football, pro, you know, football players around the country uh, want to get while they become multimillionaires just to play quarterback, backup quarterback at Oklahoma. Right. Like it's just a different spectrum. So, yeah, I, I think honestly, the biggest improvement can be quality of life things for CU fans to make the game experience and game day experience better and marketing this CU team Again, I talked about this DMA thing. It's hard because they're going up against pro teams in Denver, but you need to find a niche audience to this that's outside of the fan base. And, you know, it's possible. The Rapids have found that. The Avs have found that uh, in non-traditional you know, American sports. Monstrous Joe had an off-topic question for us. Jake, he asked, what new programs on TV are you watching and what are your reasons for recommending them to me slash us? I'm going to go real quick because uh, we've got three kids and a puppy that has endless energy. So it takes me about two months to get through a, a, a season of a show. Uh, wife and I are doing Dexter New Blood because the, the original Dexter series had, had just a horrible ending to it. And so it's actually really, really entertaining on Showtime. So I would recommend that if you were into the first Dexter and were frustrated by the ending of it, definitely watch that. And I'm watching a show called Bloodline on Netflix that's uh, – kind of dark like ozark but it moves really slow kind of like Kyle better good in that man yeah it's i i haven't quite finished it but i'm getting really close i would recommend that but that's more like i really enjoy watching that when i would travel for football games it's a good like airplane show because it doesn't move that fast kind of reminds me of better call saul it's a really good show and it does have action but it takes a while to get to that and then yeah i'm going to jump back into ozark once i'm done with that well, what shows are you watching uh, I can't wait till Better Call Saul comes back. That I liked that better than Breaking Bad. I think that show's genius. Um, I, I, I watch so much TV. Next Level Chef was awesome. On, on a side note, you might have seen the advertising for that during like football games, NFL games with Gordon Ramsay. That is the best trash TV show I've watched. Like that was so fun. Um, oh, uh, Euphoria, do not watch. Euphoria is terrible. I can't stop watching it. I hate that I'm watching it. I'm mad that I know everything on the internet tweeted about Jules and Rue. It is so annoying. I hate that show. It is poorly written. But <laughs> music kind of slaps. Uh, every part of that show sucks. Ozark is really good. Just watched that whole new season. Uh, obviously, the second part isn't out yet. Uh, I watched uh, The Other Two, which is a fun show uh, about uh, you know a, a, a young uh, pop singer that breaks, you know, viral sensation. And he's got a gay brother and an older sister that are kind of lost in New York and their mom just lost her husband. It, it's, it's a fun show. It's really funny. 
Um, it's a little bit dark. And then I just watched Righteous Gemstones all the way through. Uh, I caught up in the middle of the second season. I just watched it. That show was awesome. I love Danny McBride. Um, I can't wait till Drive to Survive comes out. I'm a big F1 fan. Uh, they're supposedly making a Drive to Survive about the Tour de France, which is like the big, like that's literally like you couldn't say two things to me that would mash up better than that. Uh, I actually started watching Eli and Peyton's Places when I'm working. Uh, that show's actually pretty fun for just, you know, what's what's going on in sports. But yeah, I, I watch a ton of TV. I, I, I mean, I've got a girlfriend, me and her just sit here, you know, watching TV. She's going back through the Seinfelds because I know I can quote, you know, Seinfeld here and there. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's it's basically I mean, I mean, I can't tell you anything from the Torah as a Jew. The thing that, you know, stuck with me was everything from Seinfeld. Um, so, yeah, you had a family, I, family member that had a cameo on Seinfeld, right? Yeah, my uh, my aunt, my aunt was in the watch, which is I made uh, I, I made my girlfriend watch that the other day. My aunt Jamie's a background character at a dinner table in that. And I just watched Curb. I watched that whole new season of Curb. It was very Curb. So if you like Curb, that that was awesome. That show was was a great season. Uh, but if you don't like the way Curb is designed, you're going to hate that. Um also, uh, if you might have heard the teens talking about the show, you on Netflix, another terrible show. Do not watch that one. Uh, save your time. And uh, I, I mean, like there, there's these shows that I like get roped into, like Ballers with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah. I'm like, this is the worst show I've ever watched. I can't believe I'm watching this. And then, like, you question your you question your life after. Right. And then one like three days episodes. later, I'm like, what, when is the next Ballers? I can't wait till the next one comes out. So I, I, I'm here. If you need TV recommendations, hit me up on the board or on my Twitter and I will tell you what to avoid, what not to. Um, but Netflix raising their subscription prices and they don't like have any real TV on there anymore. I'm trying to figure out who's actually, I mean, my roommates, girlfriends paying for my Netflix, who's actually paying for Netflix. I guess maybe you are, but like no one I know is outright paying for Netflix. Where is this money coming from? <laughs> apparently from suckers like me well we've uh, gone long enough here jake uh, tv expert along with everything else uh thursday at 3 30 mountain right isn't that when mm -hmm. they play their first Pac -12 Pac -12 network baby all right well you can catch me at blake street tavern that's where i'm gonna watch that bad boy all right. We went kind of short on some of those questions. Again, we have a long off season coming up to dissect all that stuff. So I apologize if it seemed like we were rushing through your question there, but uh, March Madness is here. Thanks for tuning in.